0: and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with social psychologist, Dr. Bill Swan. Bill is a professor of social psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. He's primarily known for his research on the self, identity, and self-esteem. He's received research awards from the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of Mental Health, and the National Institute on Drug Abuse. In 2010, he served as president of the Society of Experimental Social Psychology. In 2016, he received the Distinguished Lifetime Career Award from the International Society for Self and Identity. Bill and I sat down to talk about the self and the processes involved in maintaining our views of ourselves across various social situations. Our self-views can sometimes fluctuate. However, we know that there are some clear psychological goals pursued by all human beings when thinking about ourselves. We all want to see ourselves as likable, competent people. But as Bill points out, want is a very tricky word. The self is complex, and sometimes we care more about being right or consistent versus making ourselves feel good and vice versa. One thing that stuck out to me in our conversation was the idea of how important credibility is when receiving feedback from others. The idea that you can't necessarily build up someone's self-esteem just by telling them how great they are, and you also might not be able to build up your own self-esteem through generic affirmations. This talk made me reevaluate the way I think about my self-concept, and I hope it does the same for you. Enjoy. All right, I am here today with Bill Swan. Bill, thank you for joining me today. Pleasure to be here. Uh, So you have a a long, successful career studying a topic in psychology known as uh, the self. Uh, Why don't you start by just giving an overview of of the types of questions that a a self-researcher might be interested in?
1: Well, the self, um, broadly defined, just refers to the person, but social psychologists have tended to focus on self-views, which is a collection of beliefs about the person, and it includes the self-concept, which are specific views of the self, and self-esteem, which is a global view of the self. And researchers have been interested in the nature of the, of self-views, uh, their consequences, um, and the mechanisms through which they influence behavior and, and other thought processes.
0: Right, uh, so, uh, one thing that you can think about when when discussing the self is that uh, the way that we think of ourselves have certain motives, right? There are certain goals that we're constantly trying to maintain when we think about ourselves, right? So, could you just talk about what some of those motives are and 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 the the our tendency to juggle them?
1: Yeah, there's there's a, quite a few motives that have been identified, but I think that they all fall very broadly into two, one of two categories. Uh, There's self positivity uh, motives, which um, have been variously called self enhancement, or self protection. Uh, but all those motives are about maximizing the positivity of the self. And then so
0: these are sort of things like uh, things that you would maybe excuses you would make to make yourself feel better about, about doing something. What's an example of, uh, of a way that somebody might might self enhance
1: so um so excuses are one thing um and that's kind of the interpretation component uh but there's also selective attention people tend to to um selectively examine positive things about themselves and not pay so much attention to negative things um there's also uh memory biases people tend to remember more positive than negative things and then the the there's interpretation which is includes excuse making and other kinds of uh, processes that maximize the fit between your positive desired view of yourself and your interpretation of say social feedback that you receive.
0: Okay, so basically to uh, to summarize, it would be. Um, it would be thoughts that are designed to, to sort of maintain a positive view, oh, right. right? Okay. Right. So, what that, are what are some of these other motives then?
1: So that those cl- that broad class of motives, the positivity motives, are are in contrast to um, a desire for accuracy or realistic views of oneself, and so those two are constantly in. Uh, in conflict and, and um, because you have both motives and, and you can't get along without either one. Uh, so, you know, the, the manifestations of that is like, you know, we, we gave people feedback uh, that was positive but they had a negative self-view and they would say stuff like, well, it really sounds good and I'd like to believe that but it just doesn't really fit with who I really am. And so you could see in real time this struggle between the desire for positivity and the desire for accuracy. So accuracy actually is a little tricky too because it can be defined in different ways. So one um, way to define it is objective accuracy and that you would operationalize that as say, for example, your score on an IQ test. Uh, but what we often use as a stand-in for, accurate, for objective accuracy is subjective accuracy, which is the convergence between uh, whatever the feedback is and your chronic views of who you are. So um, your self-view then uh, is, may or may not be exactly what would be supported by the objective evidence, but it's usually what we work with when we think of whether or not feedback is accurate or not.
0: Yeah, it, it reminds me of, uh, of my, my fantasy football league that I participate in and where um, the, the comparisons are what you use to tell, to, to trash talk with your friends. It's often a fluid comparison, right? So sometimes you might say, look at, you know, look how I did this week, I won. But then other times you might say, well, I, you know, I lost this week, but you know, I made the right call with this player. Right, even though I lost, and and what what it ends up doing is creating this uh, this scenario where potentially you could never have to see yourself in a negative view as long as you keep moving the goalpost for how you uh, how you interpret that event, right?
1: Right, but there are are usually limits. I remember for many years um, I had kind of an afro and lots and lots of hair, and I th- sort of thought of myself as having lots of hair until. Uh, one time, my father-in-law <clears throat> um, sort of uh, accidentally uh, took a picture of me from above. He was up on the stairs, and then I saw myself from his perspective. And, you know, I had significant baldness at that point, <laughs> which I look back fondly upon because now it's more than significant. Um, but, you know, you always get these reality checks that come in from time to time that that uh, will... Cause you to update uh, an outmoded self-view
0: or an inappropriate self-view, right? Um, so, if we're if if we're trying to balance being accurate with how we see ourselves and sort of being positive with how we how we see ourselves, um, are there are there situa- are there conditions about each individual situation that will influence whether we lean one way or the other? whether we're focused on, on one goal or of the other?
1: Yeah, a lot of it has to do with, you know, who your interaction partner is. So if you have um, an interaction with the checkout lady at the at this grocery store, there's not really any need for her to know, uh, you know, who you are. Uh, so you might, if she compliments you and you know it's inaccurate, you probably just let it go. Um, or when we're in a dating situation and we want this, per- we want to have a second date. We might try to look for evidence that this person thinks well of us and and receive that very well. But it, then you know, if you, if the relationship <clears throat> um, continues and you become serious, that's when you start to want to have want to be seen as you see yourself, uh, because you know, in the long haul, this person is going to figure you out. So you may as well spill the beans early on, or, or maybe not early, really early on, but fairly on because you don't want to get caught with your interpersonal pants down. Later <laughs> in the relationship. Um, right. So, so a large part of it is the nature of the relationship. Some relationships uh, you can get away with being seen as positively as possible, but some relationships really need to be seen accurately.
0: So, um, Basically, what we are talking about now relates to the, the specific theory that you've worked with um, quite a bit over the past, um, you know, fifty years or so, um, called self verification theory. Um, you're pretty well known for your work in that area, um, and even though we've basically been dancing around it, could you just could you just give a, a straightforward description of, of of this theory and and maybe add add some, some color.
1: Sure. Um, So the the theory assumes that people want to be seen as they see themselves. And that's whether they see themselves positively or negatively. And they want to do that for two reasons. One is it makes their relationships go well. Um, And the second is more of an epistemic uh, reason, which has to do with kind of feeling that you know who like you know who you are, and the, and so self-verifying or val, or accurate, self subjectively accurate feedback makes you feel like you know uh, who you are and that your self views are, are accurate, and so you get a sense of coherence um, that comes after you know receiving many many doses of self-verifying feedback over your lifespan, and so the interesting thing is that when people have firmly held self views, even if they're negative, they want to be seen accurately, especially if they're in, say, a long-term relationship. And probably the most controversial uh, finding that we've offered, and, and other people have replicated this effect lots lots and lots of times, is that when you have negative self views, <clears throat> you develop a preference for people, partners, spouses, who see you negatively, and you actually leave relationships when you're seen in an overly positive fashion or overly according to you. And so people actually get divorced uh, at a more rapid rate when they have negative self-use and their partner sees them in a positive way. Yeah, that, um,
0: that's sort of, that's interesting because it, I mean, it, it relates to a, an area of psychology that's completely different kind of from what we're talking about, where like you have, you know, you, you take a, a young woman that grows up in a home where uh, they have, you know, parents that uh, treat them poorly. They might, uh, they might n- uh, not see them, th- their children, in a positive light. They might not give them lots of compliments. They might not support them. And and you end up, uh, as you grow into adolescence, you take that with you. That ne- like, as you said, there's like a negative self view that gets, you know, set somewhere in adolescence. And what you're saying is that when you get into relationships, uh, not only might you pursue someone that, ha- that views you in the same way that maybe your parents did, um, but you might stay with them and prefer them uh, because they're, the way that they treat you is similar to how their, their, their parents treated them, regardless if they know it's bad and they, they know that they don't want to be treated like that. It's what they know. Is that, is that about right?
1: Yeah, the word want is kind of tricky because I think people want two things. They want to be seen positively as we mentioned before, but they also want to be seen in a way that confirms their their self-knowledge and, and for some people that's negative. And so they want they're ambivalent, I think if if I had to use a word. They're ambivalent about positive evaluations because on the one hand, those evaluations feel good. Everybody likes to be seen positively, but when they are discrepant with your chronic views of yourself, they also make you anxious and wary and uncomfortable. And that's why in the final analysis, if you're in a long-term relationship, people will usually opt for self-verifying evaluations over over non-verifying but positive evaluations. And so you see that, that drama gets played out of that battle between positivity and, and um, subjective accuracy again and again uh, in people with negative self-use. So people have asked me, well, does that mean that self-verifying, self-verification strivings are irrational? And my answer is no, they are not irrational. Uh, but sometimes we develop negative self-use that aren't warranted. And so that's where the error comes in. So you may just be in a relationship with a parent or a spouse or uh, an employer, and they got you wrong. They see you more negatively than you than is warranted by your you know objective characteristics. It's, but so you develop self views that are inaccurate, and that leads you down a path of you know misery and suffering because you are maltreated by people in your life. So the yeah. the irrational part is that you've developed a self-view that's, that's discordant with reality. You know, nobody, uh, even depressed people don't deserve to be maltreated. Um, they, you know, most times people get over depression and then they can resume the normal life. So it's not something, it's not an intrinsic defect in them that causes these negative self-views, it's that they've kind of had unfortunate luck um, that exposed them to a set of circumstances that causes them to develop negative views. Uh, So that's that's what's irrational.
0: Yeah, and and also there's, uh, right, having negative views about yourself, if it's really specific, is probably part of a healthy view of yourself. In other words, right? I know I am not good at, um, uh, at uh, let's say, you know, volleyball, right? I, and there's nothing wrong inherently with having a negative view of your ability at volleyball. Even if it bothers you, there's probably nothing wrong with that part. The problem comes, A, when you say, I'm not really that good at volleyball and I will never... Be that good at volleyball right that permanence part and then also to me it seems if the global part of how you view yourself is influenced by how bad you are at volleyball then you have another problem like if you're you know generally speaking a happy person you can digest the fact that you're not good at one domain as long as you're you know, competent overall. But if you're if that if you're if you're not good at volleyball, and then you get depressed because you're not good at volleyball, that's that speaks to something different, right? Yeah,
1: you don't want to to have that negative self you metastasize and take over your entire self concept. Um, so you're right. I mean, it's good for me to know that I'm bald. It's good for me to know that I'm not terribly tall, um, because those things are. Those are accurate self views, and they're they're it's adaptive to to know who I am. Uh, but when you uh, you know take in your example uh, one limitation and, and generalize that to your entire sense of worth, that's problematic. And so you know I, I, I think that the uh, with the possible exception of some members of Congress, there are no worthless people in the world. Um, these this is a a self-view that's, we consign to ourselves usually because of unfortunate circumstances. Um, But, uh, but, but depressed, there are a lot of depressed people out there and, and, um, and those self-views unfortunately are, are undeserved and, um, and can lead them to these sort of self-fulfilling behaviors that we've been talking about.
0: Yeah, I always, uh, I've had conversations with lots of Lots of people, um, uh, you know, it's funny how the average person um, uh, isn't aware that sometimes depressed people um, don't, they don't like being told positive things about themselves, right? It's almost as if like the the default thought is, well, if I'm encountering someone that's depressed, they need to be, they need to be, you know, they need to have positive things said to them to help build up their sense of self. But what your work and and all and lots of other studies in this area have shown is that it at the very least you have to be cautious about positive feedback because it will butt up against those, those views.
1: Right, yeah, it's interesting that people do seem to have so little insight into depressed people uh, and people with low self-esteem. I think part of the problem Is that there aren't all that many of them. So, you know, people with low self esteem are in the minority for sure. About 33% of people in the world have low self esteem. And uh, there's, particularly in the West, but throughout the world, uh, there's kind of a norm that you don't really express negative things about yourself. And so, even if, even of those 33%, you don't get people talking about you know, are doubts about themselves. And, and uh, as a result, uh, people, most people don't have much insight into them and they kind of go on the social norm, which is based on the 66% or so of people with high self-esteem. And they sort of assume that that's what everybody likes. You know, everybody likes positive evaluations and they don't re- realize that actually, you know, a rough, a, Sizable number of us are quite ambivalent about positive evaluations.
0: Right. Yeah, I I, I totally agree. Um, so we've we've kind of tiptoed into the self-esteem uh, research a little bit. Um, what? Uh, how would you different? It sounds very uh, elementary, but how how would you differentiate between someone that has High self-esteem versus low self-esteem. What are the what are the hallmark characteristics of 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 those different uh, different states of being?
1: So as I mentioned earlier, self-esteem is just a global view of oneself. And people who are have high self-esteem think that they're worthwhile, competent, lovable people. And people who have low self-esteem think the opposite. They think they're in relatively incompetent, not very lovable. Um, and not very worthwhile. And there's been a number of people, including myself, who've developed scales that tap into the sort of two separate components of self-esteem, likability or, or lovability on the one hand and competence on the other hand. And those two are related, but actually surprisingly distinct because um, you, can, you can imagine people who think they're really capable but not lovable and vice versa. And so, I think when um, I remember in, uh, in back thirty or so years ago, somebody asked me if I have high self-esteem, and I paused because I thought, "Well, that's a hard question because there's different components. Are you talking about lovability or or competence?" And um, I think it's it's useful often to make a a clear distinction between those two components of self-esteem.
0: Now, does. Uh from what we know about how the self operates, does, um, you know, you define self-esteem as this global uh, global evaluation that has different components, um, but does, does self-esteem, is self-esteem dependent on the area of the self that you're looking at as well? So aside from what you just mentioned about uh, whether or not you see yourself as competent and, and lovable, um, what about the, what about the domains? Like, is, is it, is it the is it the case that there are people walking around who have high self-esteem, for example, when they're at work, but when they get home, they have low self-esteem or am I talking about something different?
1: Um, you could talk about those two as separate, you know, people have made its distinction between social self-esteem and intellectual self-esteem. Um, you know, whether you call it a, call it self-esteem or self-concept is somewhat arbitrary. Um, I guess when, I, when I'm talking about relatively specific self-views, I usually use the word self-concept and reserve the word self-esteem for the more global views of self, um, like, like lovability, likability. Um, but that's, it's ultimately a semantic issue, not a conceptual one. Because I think that everybody's in agreement that you can break down self-esteem. You can slice up the pie into small bits or keep it pretty big. Um, Depending upon what your purposes are, one strategy is more appropriate than the other.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, uh, as you know, uh, self-esteem was, gosh, I mean, it, it was... I know in the in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of talk around self-esteem. And, and one of the things I always find fascinating is that um, whereas only recently have has the public been sort of against uh, certain things that we've built in our culture, like participation trophies and, you know, stuff like that, social psychologists have been on this point since you know for for much much longer right since uh since early self-esteem research um what do we need to know about self-esteem when it comes to building it up because for for the you know the government actually funded a lot of self-esteem research that ultimately led to a lot of the, the 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 term being found in in the in the zeitgeist uh but it seems like we got it wrong right off the bat where it was, you know, kids need self-esteem. We need to build it up. And we're going to do that by rewarding them. Uh, what Did we did we get something wrong there?
1: Yeah, I think that there was um, a tendency to pe- for people to say, oh, just tell them that it's that they're wonderful and that's going to make them feel wonderful. Um, but the reality is that when you tell somebody uh, that they're wonderful and they know that they're not, that's a recipe for narcissism. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, it's at least one pathway to narcissism. There's probably more than one, but I think that some children are told that they're wonderful and then they realize that, that the, this feedback is, is inaccurate. Um, and that kind of puts them in a real pickle because on the one hand they, they want to seem grateful for this positive evaluations, but on the other hand, they know that they're not, uh, but they they really don't have these positive qualities. And that can backfire because they feel like, oh, the parent probably knows that I'm not this person, but they're trying to tell me that I should be this person. I should be highly talented, but I know I'm not. And that makes me feel even worse than just knowing that I don't, that I have lack this talent because the parent is telling me that I they really think that I have it or least that they think I should have it. And so, you know, that can kind of react, the the kid might react by developing this very positive self-view that is extremely fragile. And they react to to threats to that extremely fragile positive self-view by going ballistic, because it makes them really anxious when they hear these very, um, when, they, when their positive self-view is challenged. And so, you know, that's kind of the hallmark of, of a narcissist is somebody who reacts in a, uh, by going ballistic when they're challenged, when they're so, self <laughs> Right, and,
0: and that's the, the interesting thing about narcissism is that they tend to have, well, at least in some, uh, in some measures they would have be considered as having high self-esteem, correct?
1: Well, I would never consider that. I, I think that you know people sometimes try to put narcissists on the dimension of, of high versus low self-esteem. Um, I refuse to do that because I don't think that it fits in either category. It's, it is a mixture of high and low self-esteem because on the one hand, you have people having this extremely positive view of self, but that is undermined by... Uh, an extreme uncertainty of that positive self-view. So it that's really
0: funny. Has- it's funny that you say that you say that. I, I I've always been uncomfortable with that that kind of information about you know that's one of the dangers of high self-esteem. Um, but you, you you know you did mention stability too. Um, it's almost um, you know I I would I've always been of the thought that it was high self-esteem that is extremely unstable. So that you know you take a narcissist someone that with these you know excessively positive self-views and and being very sensitive to criticism when when there's no criticism they're allowed to build up whatever they want in their head so they're they're sort of their engine can build up their self-esteem as long as there's no no output from the external world so they i so it seems like they have high self-esteem and then the low stability means that the second they get you know a, a criticism a comment made then it it sinks very quickly um i don't know if it, th- what do you think about uh, about that view
1: well there's nothing wrong with what you said descriptively i i think I, I really don't conceptualize it that way because i i think it's um to say that they have high self esteem for me connotes that they that it's based on reality and that they're they're fairly confident in it, and I don't. I think that they are not confident in it, and that's because it's not based in reality. And so um, it's a matter of how you define high self esteem, and for me, uh, part of that definition involves a certain degree of certainty. Um, and yeah, I I I um I would prefer to just not call it high self esteem because then you have um you're left in this. A pickle of trying to discriminate between people with high self-esteem, genuine high self-esteem and people who have narcissistic self-esteem. Um, so I, I just prefer not to call it self-esteem. It's a, big, a very positive self-view that's extremely fragile um, because it's not based on reality or subjectively it's not based on reality.
0: So then what does what does healthy self-esteem look like? So, for, you know, for example, if, you know, if you were to, you know, to meet somebody who who has a low, low, low self-esteem from your view, I mean, obviously you're, you know, you're a researcher, not a clinician, but what what would you describe to somebody with low self-esteem as the what they should be targeting?
1: Well, they should... Target um, developing genuinely positive self-use, which is to say, self-use that are based on evidence or self-perceived evidence. Um, so um, I, I think that is the problem: is that they either um, have misconstrued the evidence or failed to access it um, because they're they're um, afraid of of uh, confronting the reality that they're actually more positive than they think they are. And that sounds counterintuitive because people have been mired in the idea that everybody prefers positivity. But as I mentioned at the outset, we're actually locked in this contest between having positive self-views and, and accurate self-views. And you wanna get people to the point where they where their self-views are both positive and subjectively accurate. and and the only way I think to get them to that point is by syncing up positive self-views with lots and lots of evidence. Um, and that's, you know, that's often what therapists will do. They'll try to point out that um, you know, there are, th- that most people have positive, say, success experiences, good relationships, et cetera, um, and they either suppress knowledge of those things, Um, um, you know, low self-esteem people may just be suppressing those things or distorting them um, or, you know, failing to remember them. And you need to get that out onto the, uh, into memory (laughs) so it's accessible (laughs) and that people use those positive examples of self in, you know, their account of who they are or how they think.
0: Yeah. So, now you touched on on uh, you know clinicians and and therapy a little bit and one one topic that uh, in my view seems somewhat controversial in others probably not so much but a lot of a lot of clinicians and therapists use this idea uh, known as self affirmations to to help their clients and so right self affirmations are these positive statements about oneself just uh, whether it's thought written stated out loud, um, you know, I, I am enough, I am, I'm a capable person of achieving my goals, these sort of statements. Um, I know that there's a, there is, there is some controversy in this area that I'm aware of, but I figured I would let you help me walk through this, this, uh, this idea, because I know um, there are lots of little caveats, but uh, are are self-affirmations useful in your view?
1: Um, often they're not useful in the way they've been implemented. Um, you know, I'm reminded of a, a scenario where my daughter, daughter, who was, I guess, like, I don't know, five or six, I came down to the breakfast table and she's sitting there with this t-shirt on that said, I'm lovable and capable. And I said, oh, where'd you get that t-shirt? She said, oh, I got it at school. I said, okay, well, why are you wearing it today? She said, well, we're supposed to wear them every Friday. And I said, oh, okay, so why do you wear them? She said, well, at circle time, we all sit in a circle and tell each other, and everybody says I'm lovable and capable for about half an hour. And I said, boy, that sounds like a long time to be saying that. And she kind of nodded. I said, so is it good? She said, yeah, it's okay, dad. And then she reflected for a moment. And then she said, except what does capable mean? (laughs) (laughs) And so the problem that, with her shirt was that she's saying stuff that was utterly meaningless and i think that people uh with many affirmations that is that's maybe not as dramatic but that is often the case because you know i can say that i'm i'm abraham lincoln till
0: my um
1: till my t- mouth
0: till you grow a hat
1: <laughs> I grow a hat and <laughs> it's not going to change who i am and i think a lot of people are probably entertaining that possibility when they're saying these silly affirmations. Um, So I think that in those cases, affirmations are a waste of time. Um, I do think though that there are instances where affirmations could be useful. So for example, if you're, you know, um, lifting weights or or trying to do something, um, you know, write a grant proposal or trying to do some activity that you're not really sure you can do it Uh, if you tell yourself you know i can do this i just got to focus or i just got to do xyz sometimes those sorts of affirmations when they're something that you can actually translate in into reality something that's within reach sometimes those affirmations can be motivating and helpful um but i think that the problem comes when you know you you do something that's just so nebulous um, that it's just not going to be all that helpful. So if I just say that I'm likable, uh, or or lovable or whatever, without really expecting to do anything about it or expecting to recruit evidence about it, I don't think that's going to be a terrible, useful exercise. Um, would you, would you go ahead? Some of these affirmations can be self-fulfilling, like I can do this. Uh, but unless that, you see that possibility. I I don't think that it's going to be all that useful to recite them. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Would you, would you say the same thing about the sort of the culture that we have now where we have sort of um, we love little tidbits of, tidbits of affirmation. So, you know, social media, Instagram, TikTok, they have all these, you know, little, little videos or images that, that are, you know, have a nice you know, beautiful sky behind them. And then sort of what I would call sort of an empty affirmation. Um, would you, would you lump that type of pursuit in with the useless category? Because I, I have mixed feelings. Like it, it seems like it can have a, you know, tiny boost to your mood um, in the sense that, you know, you don't want to surround, like if you picture your workspace or your devices, you don't want to, you don't want to surround yourself with negative messaging or, you uh, Uh, or 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 something that doesn't have the potential to boost your mood but um but at the same time how how much benefit are you going to get from a little a little image or a a wallpaper on your on your on your tablet
1: yeah i i don't i actually don't go on social media very much so i'm not really um 100 sure what you're talking about but it sounds like they're kind of harmless uh but not particularly useful. I mean, I, I think that having um, experiences in the real world that convey important information to people are far more effective. So getting a compliment from your boss or, or um, some evidence that your, your lover loves you, um, that's gonna be far more compelling to people than some automated piece of information that that isn't based on you necessarily. I mean, at some level, I think people they may look at it and say, "Oh, that's nice," but you know, if it's not contingent, then then it's obvious that it's kind of random and that anybody could have received it, um, and and it devalues it. You know, yeah. what what makes feedback compelling to people is that it's based on something you know that you actually did. You established a relationship, or you. You know, uh, performed some sort of task or, or whatever, but it's the reality basis of the positive feedback that, that makes it compelling. And so, that, yes.
0: So then it seems as though part of the challenge with a relationship between two people where one of them is attempting to um, give positive feedback to someone that sometimes if you're trying to give positive feedback, you're going to clash against their, their self-view that might be a little bit different from the feedback you're trying to give. Is there something about the advice that we're giving? The, the, so not not so much the content, but the way that we give advice, the way that we communicate to others and try to boost them up that might uh, make it easier for them to digest the feedback so that their self-views aren't kind of, you know, clashing as much?
1: Yeah, I think that um, a big part of it is establishing credibility. Um, and one way, you know, so let's say that you're in a relationship with a person that you love, but has low self-esteem. Um, to, just, to just pretend like they don't have high, low self-esteem um, is not a, not an effective strategy. I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, okay, you may not see yourself this way, but I see you as X. Um, just acknowledging that they don't quite agree with you can be helpful uh, because that at least tells them that you see where they're coming from and, and understand and recognize that, but you also see something more to them. That they're not giving themselves credit for, um, so I, I think that's part of it. Is just really need to um, acknowledge their vision of themselves before you start trying to <laughs> voice your vision of them onto them,
0: um, or or perhaps even you know to add on to that, something that a therapist might do would be to walk somebody through the evidence a little bit right in other words if you find you know you, you have a friend who thinks that they're bad at well well forget friend let's just say well, i have a let's say i have students that think they're bad at school they're bad at school work and doing school related things um i feel like sometimes I'll, I'll try to walk them through like what i'll walk them through their previous work and say you know instead of telling them no, 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 you're a good student. Let's just go back and look at your history. Well, you got a 100 on, on this first discussion. You got a 85 on this discussion. I don't see any issues. It looks to me as if you're doing just fine. Um, maybe you're feeling like you're struggling, but you know, the evidence on, uh, it seems to be supporting that you are a reasonably good student, right?
1: Right. No, absolutely. That, that can be very effective as well. Um, but and I and I think the kind of the big larger theme here is that uh, you need to to base your perceptions of the person in reality and try to get them to do the same thing, because the villain again isn't self verification. The villain is having self views that are overly negative, and if you come from the from the premise that nobody deserves to feel worthless. Um, then I think you that that's a good start, and then you just have to sort of, um, you know, convey to them why they're not worthless or why you think they're not worthless, and then go from there. Um, and and pointing to concrete evidence is really an effective tool.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, it, I I've always struggled with this, you know, dynamic between sort of um, uh, optimism versus realism. Uh, you know the the vast majority of 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 you know positive psychology right it focuses on this optimism piece of of believing the best will happen in any given situation, and the realism piece doesn't get as much attention. But obviously, it's what you're saying is that it's extremely important. Um, now, when it comes to pursuing a goal, we know that. A little bit of self-deception is kind of a good thing, in the sense that if I'm if I'm not good at volleyball and I start practicing, uh, if if I if I constantly have an accurate view where it's like I'm not good at this thing, I'm just not good at it. Um, if it's a hyper-realistic view of my performance, I might not pursue it because I've basically decided I am objectively bad at volleyball. But if, if, if you sprinkle in a, a little bit of optimism uh, somewhat that, that, that deviates from the reality of your performance a little bit, I might be more likely to pursue it. Um, is, so how would you characterize this dynamic between Um, maintaining optimism, but when it comes to goal pursuit, uh, but also being realistic.
1: Yeah, I think that you definitely want to bring optimism in at certain points in the process. And actually, for me, it's become um, a fairly conscious and deliberate process. And it's kind of interesting that it even works because it is so conscious. But when I'm writing a a grant proposal, um, I, you know, most of the time I'm fully aware that these days funding lines are usually around 20%, if that, and sometimes as low as 2%. And if you go into writing a grant proposal, thinking about that, then there's a strong possibility that you'll just quit because writing a grant proposal is probably the most onerous thing academics do, or at least this academic. Um, So you convince yourself that, yeah, okay, maybe the 20% is the, is the cut line for most people, but they don't, that doesn't take into account how brilliant this particular proposal is gonna be. And so you convince yourself that it's actually a pretty good chance that you're gonna get it and you, you work very hard to produce the product and then you submit it. At which point I need to reverse gears a little bit and say, well, you know, I did my best, but actually the, the cut line is 20%. So I shouldn't get my hopes up too much. Um, and you sort of start to um, build up your defenses against you know, what is likely to be the outcome, which is you know, 80% of the time you're gonna get a no. So you can kind of go back and forth between the optimism and realism um, in a way that kind of gets you to maximize the possibility of actually achieving your goal uh, without leading you to be devastated when you don't. And so I, I think there's kind of an interplay there um, where you have to you know, think of yourself as a, almost like you know, you look at yourself as um, a, an individual, another person and you're trying to get that other person to, to pursue a goal, how would you do it? Well, you tell this person this story and then you modify the story appropriately at the, at the critical junctures
0: in the process. Right. Well. Uh, we've run out of time. Uh, we, I feel like we've we've really covered uh, all there is to cover about thinking about oneself. Um, I, I, I thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. I've, I've used, uh, I've cited many of your articles in my uh, in my master's work. So uh, thank you very much for uh, for being on, and uh, 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 thank you for your time.
1: Oh, thank you, Ryan. It was a delight talking to you.
0: Visit his faculty page at labs.la.utexas.edu/swan. Once again, that's labs.la.utexas.edu/swan. Be sure to follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on iTunes. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter. At WDWDT pod. As always, feel free to email me at WhyDoWeDoThatPodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question why do we do that?